But uh, yeah, the Lord gave us three children. Jeremy and Michael and Lori. And then he inflicted you with a fourth. <laughs> he inflicted you with a fourth. <laughs> then he gave us Billy, and uh, he's almost like a son. Enjoy. And so it's so excited for the life that they're building and are living together. And uh, so, how many months have you been married? Well, we're approaching our fifth anniversary, so. Oh my God. Um, Five years. No yeah, time. so 55 months. Is it 55 months? So it's 55 months later, a day, isn't it? Lose month of the lose month. <laughs> Let's pray. So. Father, we do love you and praise you, Lord, for your goodness and faithfulness to us. We thank you for family and friends and church family and for this time that we have to worship you and to hear your word. So pour out your spirit upon us today as Billy preaches your word to us and give us ears to hear what you're saying to the church today. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. May the words of my heart and the meditation May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. So you do have David to thank for this. And um, so in the last couple of weeks, um, since we've nailed this down, I've started back to school. And then um, to make matters worse, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night of this past week, um, I worked the overnight at my job. I work at UAB now. And... Um, and then my body didn't make the switch yesterday. And so um, I laid in bed last night and stared at the ceiling until about 6.30 this morning and I got up. So I've not slept since like 3 yesterday afternoon. Um, so we'll try, to get, we'll try to get through it together. And um, uh, it has been a long time uh, since I've been here. I'm forever grateful for this place, grateful for the Charismatic Episcopal Church. Um, for the love that it instilled in me, for the sacraments, um, for making me Catholic, and then ultimately making me Anglican. Um, so it is good to be back. It is good to be in this place. And um, while the song, not the not the last song, not the hymn, the greatest of faithfulness, but the one before that, just thinking about the faithfulness of the Lord and. I was thinking about what this place looked like when we first, when we first moved here. Um, was is, was it Easter of 2000 that was our first service here? When did we? Easter of 99. Okay, so it was a year later. I knew. Um, you know, there was the short time that we were in the store. Oh, that was the Easter of 99. Okay, so. Um, and God has been good. God has been uh, good to me. Um, he's done great things in this place. And so it is good to be back. So we're going to start in Ezekiel 33, and we're going to touch on all the passages before it's said and done. And um, 
Ezekiel is a really important book in the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah was an earlier prophet, and then you get to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and they are, they are prophesying at about the same time. Uh, of course, Ezekiel went, um, he was taken captive in the first captivity, um, which is around 597 BC. And so while Jeremiah is prophesying in the capital city of Jerusalem, and you read um, in Jeremiah there of all the things that they're going through before the fall of Jerusalem, um, and they're constantly wanting to turn and they're wanting uh, to go to, to Egypt. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting to me. I'm all, almost drawn to go to Egypt more than I am to go to the Holy Land. Um, just to go there, to the place, it's that intricately entwined in, in the biblical story. Um, Israel was made a nation there. They were made large there. Of course, they were enriched there. And there was always the desire and the tendency to want to go back to Egypt. And uh, they were judged harshly for it and wanting to trust in Egypt. And then I think it's interesting because everyone... Everyone talks about Jesus and the importance in his life that he, he kind of relives the steps that Israel took. And he comes up out of Egypt and passes through in baptism the Jordan River and to, go, to go into his ministry. But I, I've always thought it was interesting that Israel had this tendency, even though God told them not to, to seek refuge in Egypt, he sends Jesus for refuge in Egypt. And... Um, I don't. It's just something that that's always played in my mind. It, it, it's it's neither here nor there, really. Particularly not this morning, but it's always struck me that Jesus also came from Egypt. But God's telling them not to go to Egypt, and the whole time you have people that are living in Babylon at this point, and um, we know that Ezekiel, from this book, uh, he's a priest and he has a wife and he has a house. And his house is on uh, the river uh, Chabar, which is really, um, it's probably a canal, an irrigation canal that has been built from the Euphrates. Um, and so he's there on the river, or on this canal, and he has a vision of God. And his vision of God, um, in some ways, mirrors the other prophets. But it's very interesting, because you, you have these wheels, and they're moving in all the directions. And then there's eyes. The, the two big things is they, they can move in every direction and they have all these eyes. And so the whole idea here is that, that God sees. God goes to the whole world. God sees everything. And um, He even sees the people that are there in exile in Babylon. And He is... so, And He's going to speak to them as well. And that's Ezekiel's job. And so um, there He's called... His calling is basically in chapter 3. He has multiple more visions. Um, in chapter 10, he has a vision. And in his vision, in chapter 10, he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple. And what a, just a misfortune of huge magnitude for the glory of the Lord to no longer reside in the temple. I mean, it's, it's literally... The temple itself reflects creation. So the leaving of the Lord from the temple, the fall and destruction of Jerusalem is very much, 
it's the end of the world. Um, and so you have this, these events, they, they occur. Um, you have the fall of Jerusalem. But so the first 24 chapters, Ezekiel is speaking to the Israeli, Israelites. And then in, uh, in the next few chapters up through 32, he's prophesying about Israel's enemies. And then in 33, you have the beginning of a major change in the Old Testament. Um, Ezekiel begins to have a vision of a restored Israel, but it's a vision that looks beyond anything that has been before. He sees in 36 that, he, uh, that God is going to write His law in the hearts of the people. In 37, he has the vision of the, dry, of the Valley of Dry Bones where, where the, the bones are brought back to life. They're, they're given flesh. And then uh, in conjunction with that, the, the, the prophecy that God is going to be with his people and that he's going to be their God and they're going to be his people in a much more personal way. And so you see this change begin to happen with Ezekiel with the fall of Jerusalem that, that culminates really in the minor prophets and you have the Old Testament encapped with the idea of new creation. Particularly in Daniel, you see the Ancient of Days that he's coming in glory. And so you have the beginning of creation with creation and then you have the ending with new creation. Everything gets bookended nice together in the theology of the Old Testament. And so really in Ezekiel 33, this is, this is where that transition begins in the prophets and the life of Israel looking beyond what they have known because of this great tragic event of the collapse of Jerusalem. And so God begins it with this idea from chapter 3. God tells Ezekiel in chapter 3 that he's setting him as a watchman. And so the word, comes to Dan the, word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel again. And uh, he says that if a land takes and makes a watchman, and if he sees the sword coming and he blows the alarm, and people don't heed it, then it's on them. right? They're responsible for their own blood because they didn't hear the warning. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and doesn't sound the alarm, then their blood, the blood of the city, the blood of the land is on the watchman. And God tells him at the beginning of our reading today, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning, warning from me. And if I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and you turn from... And if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. This is such a word, I think, for the church today. Maybe not this church in particular, but we look at the world and the state of the church on the whole, Christianity as a whole, the mainline denominations, 
they have abdicated their responsibility to proclaim the coming of the day of the Lord, to proclaim the righteousness that's revealed in the law. Satan has run amok in our society and in our churches. I mean, he has attacked... It started with an attack on normal morals regarding in the normal way of expressing the image of God in the sexual relationship in the sexual revolution of the 60s. We bear the image of God. It says in Genesis 1, God created man and woman, male and female, or God created man, male and female, he created them. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, marries his wife. The very image of God is born in the marriage relationship and the sexual relationship. And, God, and Satan attacked that first. And that through both the sexual revolution that led to rampant immorality. And then also through divorce. And no-fault divorce. And the church's gradual... There was a gradual acceptance of divorce to begin with. And then from there, you've got abortion. And abortion gets made legal in conjunction with the sexual revolution. And so not only do you have the attack on the image of God in the marriage relationship, you have the attack on the image of God in the parental relationship. The, the, the God commanded Adam and Eve to go, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. The, the, natural, the natural outcome, the Trinity was three people, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, living a life and self-giving to one another. And out of that self-giving love came the creation of the world as we know it in Genesis 1 and 2. And so from that love, that self-giving love and marriage and bearing the image of God is supposed to produce life supposed to produce children. That's the way God intended it. And when a parent can go to the abortion clinic, they not only destroy, they don't, it's not only that they don't recognize the image of God in the child and destroy the image of God in the child, they destroy it in themselves because they are denying the reality of they're supposed to be engaging in the creative nature of God. And so we have this, we have the acceptance of divorce in the church and our clergy. The marriage between man and woman has been changed, has been accepted in so many of the mainline churches. Abortion, we had, uh, there was a, the presiding bishop, the last presiding bishop, I think it was, or maybe the one before her, of the, of the Episcopal Church in the USA, said abortion could be a sacrament. I mean, how, that is satanic. How twisted is that? And so you have mainline churches promulgating homosexual marriage, divorce, abortion. It is a complete eradication of the idea of being in the image of God. And now in the Church of England, you even have some people who would advocate for the use of the baptismal rite to reaffirm someone's transgender transition. So the attack of Satan in society for not only the image of God, but the only, 
the only aspect of human difference that is created by God himself. Male and female, he created them. Satan has attacked that. And look how quickly it's fallen. And the churches are dying because of it. They're, I don't even know where to go, but to say this, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them, and we live in a society that doesn't know how to say that. They don't know how to voice that. But I think that if you, you can't look around and see the society that we were living in without hearing this question that they said, how then can we live? I think our society is obsessed with that question of how can we live? That's why uh, the churches are dying. <laughs> because they don't see a way to live. They don't see a difference. They, there's... They see nothing to draw them. And that's why somebody like Jordan Peterson has millions of followers who are enthusiastic because they're being told that there's a standard that they can live to. Someone's holding them to something. Even if it's just a guy that they buy their books. And he's good. I mean, he's so good. He is so close to the truth. That man gets so close to kingdom truth. But it falls short. And the, the deaths from, the deaths from um, despair are so much on the rise. And God says to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. And God turns their question on them. It's not how can they live. God says, why will you die? I've made this easy. I've made it easy. Why will you die? And I just realized I never really talked about where we were going this morning. Our collect, our theme for the Sunday, is that God resists the proud, but that He never forsakes those who delight in His mercy. And so, the sermon this morning is three responsibilities that characterize the life of the person who's not trusting in their own strength, but delighting in the mercies of the Lord. So that was point one. We have a responsibility to the lost. To proclaim, to turn them back from destruction for God's. And that's the long one, I promise. So let's look at Romans very quickly. Our, our reading picked up at 8, but let's pick up at 7 in Romans 13. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So, it's a great verse. I'm not going to go through all of Romans. 
to, to, to pick up the little points. But, but it comes to this conclusion. Everybody in seminary, I think we got, or I was a New Testament major in the undergrad. Our class basically got through Romans 11, right? <laughs> and because the first 11 chapters of Romans is a great argument that Paul's making. And, um, and then he gets into these ethical issues and how things are playing out. And it comes to this thing, basically where he's telling them, it comes to this conclusion of, hey, pay your debts as quickly as you can. You know, take care of your business. Don't owe anything, anybody anything that you can help it, except to love each other. Because that's the one debt that can't be paid. Jesus said to love one another as I have loved you. And that's not just the cross, that's also Philippians. Where it says that he considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped, not to be held on to. Jesus literally surrendered everything. It's the one debt that can't be paid. We have to love one another. It goes on to say that you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That verse right there leaves no questioning. Love is not the excusing of the law. It's not okay, you come and you worship with us, although we want people to come and worship with us, but it is not the condoning of whatever lifestyle, the accepting of whatever lifestyle. It's not of any sin, of, any, of anything that you want to do. That is not what love is. Love is also sounding the alarm. Love is also in our own lives not committing sin against other people. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That is why it is the fulfilling of the law. And the life that is not filled with pride, the life that lives in humility, understands that the time, the hours come for us to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The idea is not nearness in time, I don't think, here. I mean, obviously, it's been a couple of thousand years since this was written. The idea here is that the next step in salvation history is the Perusia. It is near as in its next. And that that needs to be the guiding aspect of our life. The night is gone and the day is at hand. So we must cast off the works of darkness. We have to put on the armor of light. We have to walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the juxtaposition of all of these works of darkness, of these evil things that we're not supposed to do. The opposite of that is not to do right things, Although doing right things will be the product of the opposite of that. The opposite of that is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Major Ian Thomas. Saint Ian Thomas. The life that Jesus lived on earth was the life of God the Father in Him through the Holy Spirit. 
the life that we live is the life of Jesus Christ lived out through us, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We put on Christ. We press into Him. We seek for Him. Thereby making no provision for the flesh to not gratify its desires so that we can love our neighbor as we should. The idea of a neighbor and the Israelite to the Jewish mind is someone of the nation. But we know that Jesus expanded the idea of a neighbor to anyone who chooses to be a person's neighbor. Basically to everyone. We have a responsibility to choose to be the neighbor to the people around us. It is probably the way in which Mr. Rogers was most Christ-like. When he looked at that TV camera and invited preschool children every week to be his neighbor. He chose to be a neighbor. He's one of my heroes, by the way. And then in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, so we have a responsibility to love and the ethics that that entails. And then Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have sinned, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you. So the scripture provides for the privacy of the matter, but also don't miss that it places the responsibility for restoration on the one who was wronged, not on the sinner. Jesus places the expectation that there not be retaliation, but that there be a spirit of forgiveness. Go to your brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The brother in the Israeli mind is, in the Jewish mind, is a religious brother. So this, this idea of your brother in Christ, of someone within the church, it's your job to go to them if you're sinned against. But if he, re listen, if he refuses to listen, Take one or two others along with you, and this is fulfilling the law of having two witnesses to establish that every, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church and let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If you haven't noticed it yet, up until this point, what is missing from this passage is clergy. There's not a well-established clergy yet, but the responsibility for genuine unity within the church, Jesus lays directly at the feet of its members. If you're sinned against, you're responsible to go. If they don't listen, you take two witnesses with you. If they don't listen then, then you tell it to the church. And then at that point, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, 
But it's, again, it's for the purpose, for the ultimate restoration of that brother to the church. Restoration is always the end. And that is also, when you get to finally say, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Man, we like the verses from 18 on. We struggle with the verses before it. And I do too. It is much easier to hold an offense than to seek restoration. It is much easier even to just forgive the person and move on. Right? That's easier for you, but it's not easier for them. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. We're seeing the benefits of the unity. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, who are gathered in my will, who are seeking me, seeking to live by his precepts, he's among them. It's not necessarily just a getting of what you want. It has to be that all-important, forever gathered in my name. So where does that leave us? We have a responsibility to proclaim to the lost. We have a responsibility to love our neighbors well, to be aware of the coming of the time and to live our lives not as those who live in darkness but as those who have seen the light of Christ we have a responsibility to live in true unity amongst ourselves as Christians a true unity that doesn't disregard the truth we have to realize that we aren't able. We have to clothe ourselves in Christ. We have to seek Him, press into Him as I was saying. We also have to see the necessity of all the Scripture, the necessity of the Law, the Prophets, the Gospels, the, the letters of Paul. The whole counsel of Scripture has to be the basis of our understanding of what sin is of when someone sins against us, of what people need to be called from, how we, our message as the watchman, of what brings disunity to the body. In Ezekiel 36, God said He would write the law in their hearts. In Romans, Paul talks about the circumcision of the heart. It's not some new law. It's just that we have, if we're open to it, if we're living in a right relationship with the Lord, we have someone in us to convict us of what is right, of what is wrong. And, and so, it is not in us. We have, to, we have to trust in the mercy of the Lord. And we have to pray with the psalmist. Teach me, O Lord, 
Give me understanding. Lead me. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Confirm to your servant your promise. And turn away the reproach that I dread. And then he says, 40 kind of reverses it a little bit. And the passive part is in the second part of the verse. But he says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. It's, it's not about us. I, if you haven't read Psalm 119 in a while, it's like the longest prayer in the Bible. Every verse is just like that. So we have to press into God to, for God to give us the desire to show us the way to lead us in the paths. And He will. So that's, that's my word for this morning. Thank you all for having me. Um, I haven't preached in nearly 10 years. Um, I, th I think it's been about that long. It was, it was, I was here. Um, in the last couple of times that I preached, um, for me it was dreadful. I can't imagine that it was much better for the people here. Um, and I was really surprised a couple of years ago when the Lord started speaking to my heart again and about, about ministry. Actually, it goes back further than that. I, I guess it was about the same time I met Joy. And then... Um, and then probably a couple of years ago, I would start having the thought, and I guess I would hope that every professional does this. Like, it, it wasn't a criticism, but I would start having the thought, that's not how I would preach that passage when I was hearing someone else preach. And it's not that they're preaching it wrong, right? It's just that's not how I would do it. Which leads to your thinking again about preaching. Wayne is sitting back there. You've been through this, I'm sure. And, um, and so, and then... A few weeks ago, when Dave prompted, well, probably when the Holy Spirit prompted Dave, and Dave prompted Ronnie, and Ronnie prompted me, and I started to say no, because that was my standard answer at that point. The Holy Spirit prompted me otherwise. So I was glad to, glad to be here this morning, glad to be back. Thank you all. So.